0: everyone here this evening and it's always good for Bible study and fellowship, isn't it? We, this could almost be called Grace Bible Fellowship. Uh, I mean it's such good fellowship and I, I appreciate it. I know even when we even when we have funerals, we we stay in fellowship, and one could get the wrong idea that we're we're celebrating. Well, we're celebrating the life and the fact that the believer is with the Lord. But uh, anyway, it's, it's just I've just noticed that over the years, it's just good fellowship here, and you appreciate that. So anyway, for those who are watching live streaming, that might be why we're just a few minutes late in getting started. But I don't <laughs> I don't think I'd. I don't think I have to worry about that. All right. Well, this evening, we're going to finish up on chapter 13. Only five verses, but there's a lot there and a lot to talk about. This is entitled, Elisha's Last Mention and Miracle. Now, when I say it's his last mention, I mean it's his last mention in the Old Testament. There is a mention of him in the book of Luke but this is his last mention of his ministry and of what he's doing. And of course, you always think of the last. Uh, You hear that, you know, you have uh, Custer's last stand, not a very good thing. But you you have uh, last quotes of individuals, um, and some of them have been very, very good. Uh, Last quotes of Christians um, have been very, very powerful. Um, But we come to this man who I've come to really appreciate. Uh, it's, it's interesting, I, I was going through, trying to look for some some pictures uh, of him. Um, some of them showed him bald, we talked about that. One of them was uh, a <laughs> picture of the bears going after those young men who who made fun of him. Thought, well, we won't show that one. But um, I did come up with a couple of photos Uh, that talked about a title and one of the titles about Elisha was Elisha the prophet of life and I thought that is good you know here he is uh, over the Shunammite's son but we're going to see tonight in the last miracle why again he could be called the prophet of life which would also make him a type of Christ um I came across another one that said, Elisha the miracle prophet. Definitely. We're going to look. I have a chart that I handed out um, of Elisha's miracles. There is approximately 32. That's 32 to Elijah's 16. So we'll spend a little time talking about that. And then I, I came across this one, and I had to ponder it, but you know I think it's right. Elisha the forgotten prophet you know, he just doesn't have as big of a platform as Elijah. And yet he's had a strong ministry. And and um, there's nothing wrong with that. I think the reason why Elijah gets the most of the accolades is because of the uh, the big battle that he had um, there on Mount Carmel with the priests of Baal. And that, that, you know, that's something that just is appreciated so much. But In a sense, Elisha is probably not advertised or promoted as much. I know he is, and I know he is in Bible churches. You know, anyone who goes through 2 Kings is going to see that. But anyway, I thought that was very interesting. So that concludes the photo op that we have tonight of Elisha. So it is entitled, Elisha's Last Mention and Miracle. So let's go ahead and read verses 20 through 21. So 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 20. And it begins with, Elisha died and they buried him. Now the bands of the Moabites would invade the land in the spring of the year. As they were burying a man, behold, they saw a marauding band And they cast the man into the grave of Elisha. And when the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and turned to them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence until now. When Hazael, king of Aram, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities which he had taken in war from the hand of Jehoahaz, his father. Three times Jehoash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. Well, with that, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we again marvel at your word and thank you for the word. Uh, Lord, even in just its literature, Lord, uh, in all of the ironies and the connections, and even as you read that passage, they're just jumping out at you. But Father, we, we... we thank you that your your word is your word. It's the authoritative word of God for everything we should believe and how we should behave. It gives us the instructions for eternal life by faith alone and Christ alone. And then it gives us the instruction to depend upon Christ and the new nature and the Holy Spirit for our living. And Father, there will be such things that we'll touch upon this evening. And we ask, Father, that we will learn from even the life of Elisha this evening. And we'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to do a review uh, just of the last section. We covered verses 1 through 19. And this is just very helpful, especially when there's more than one Jehoash and more than one Joash So this is just very good as we put it together. But the beginning of chapter 13, we saw that Jehoahaz uh, came to reign as the king. And I will stop there. So we're now looking at the northern kingdom. We finished up with the southern kingdom with Jehoash, uh, who was the son of Ahaziah. Um, but now we have turned our attention to the northern kingdom, and Jehu's son is Jehoahaz, and he became king. And then, as we'll see in just a moment, his son, Joash, or Jehoash, will become king, and he's mentioned in those 19 verses. Now, it says in verse 2 of chapter 13 that Jehoahaz did evil in the sight of the Lord. And again, that phrase specifically in Kings means that they are following other gods and leading the people of Israel to follow other gods. Now, Jehoahaz did something that was interesting. He entreated the Lord for mercy, for help. And we said that maybe this was uh You know, there were crocodile tears and crocodile prayers, uh, meaning they didn't necessarily mean them. But he entreated the Lord, and the Lord answered. And the Lord raised up a deliverer, and there was some question about who the deliverer was, but it was probably the Assyrians. And at this point in the background, the Assyrians are starting to develop their power and their military, and it's going to grow and grow and grow until they just take everybody out and including take Israel, the northern kingdom, to Assyria in exile. So, but they are the deliverer right now. So the Arameans, they had to stop coming after Israel for a time to protect themselves from the Assyrians. But even after this happened in the answer to prayer, we find out that Jehoahaz continued in idolatry. And that's the hard part to swallow. And I, that, that is what really has provoked the anger of the Lord. Well, his son, after he died, his son Jehoash reigns as king. And there's really only a few verses about him. Um, doesn't really need to take much because verse 11 says, And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, we're going to see him. Tonight, we're actually going to review in detail what happened with Jehoash and Elisha because this is important to put these together. And what happened was, Jehoash visited Elisha on his deathbed and he heard that he was dying, and so he visited him. Well, while he was there, Elisha the prophet said, I want you to take this bow and I want you to shoot these arrows. And as many times as you shoot the arrows, you will have victory. Well, and he stopped at three. And he was rebuked by Elisha. Because he didn't have the determination or the faith to go more for more victories. And that is where that leaves off. But I do want to revisit it for just a little bit. Verses 14. 14. Uh, 2.19, because that's going to really set the stage for verses 20 through 25. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 14 through 21. So here we're going to read again for the second week in a row. When Elisha became sick with the illness of which he was to die, and so that would lead us to believe that he's very, very sick and probably on his deathbed. Joash, or Jehoash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over him and said, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. Well, again, we said at this point where he comes down and he weeps, was this crocodile tears? Last week we talked about what are crocodile tears, do crocodile Do crocodiles have tears? Yes, they do. Not because they're sad, but usually right before they eat. (laughs) They're so happy, they're to the point of tears. So in other words, it means there may be what looks like outward emotion, but there's nothing going on on the inside. Calls him, my father, my father, a term of endearment, one in which that Elisha said about Elijah, but I think this is of a different nature. Well, as they began to dialogue, Elisha, in his last prophetic duty, told him to take a bow and arrow and multiple arrows. And then he said, put your hand on the bow. And he put his hand on the bow. And then Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And at this point, Jehovah should have realized something is going on that's pretty important here. This is coming with the authority of the prophet, the prophet of God, but he does not. And then it says, open the window, verse 17, toward the east, and he opened it. And then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And Elisha said, the Lord's arrow of victory even the arrow of victory over Aram. For you will defeat the Arameans at Aphek until you have destroyed them. And so it becomes a type of victory. It's a sign. It's a symbol. And then in verse 18, he tells him to take more arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. And he struck it three times and stopped. In other words, it was... This big thing, the Lord's victory over the Arameans that have continued to give you problems, especially with King Hazael. You remember him? He's the one that Elisha wept over because of the terrible things he was going to do to the children of Israel. And he could have defeated him, but he stops at three. A lack of determination, but I think from a lack of faith. I don't believe that he believed And had faith so much in Elisha as the prophet of God or in God. Because he's still allowing idolatry to go on. It says in verse 19, So the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Aram until you would have destroyed it. But now you shall strike Aram only three times. All right, so that sets the stage for these next five verses. We'll see in a little bit. Verse 20, then, is the place where we find out that Elisha died and he was buried. One writes this, Elisha's ministry spanned at least 56 years. That's another That's another thing that to talk about the greatness of Elisha. Um, Maybe he is considered the forgotten prophet that many people don't realize that. This did include the years that he was serving Elijah. He was called by Elijah during Ahab's reign, which ended in 853. And Elisha died in Jehoash's reign, which began in 798. So somewhere in there, approximately, uh, he had been in ministry at least some 56 years. Well, as I I thought about the prophet, and and I'm sure my words are not going to give him his due. I did did look for a good quote of somebody who was kind of celebrating the ministry of of Elisha. I didn't really find one, so um, I I wrote one, and, and it speaks for itself. Elisha was an extraordinary prophet. He was the loyal servant of Elijah He had a double portion of Elijah's spirit. He was compassionate toward both God's people as well as other nations. By the way, let me stop there. Um, You remember when he uh, came to Jericho and the, the water was bad there and God's people were were complaining about it and he purified the water and then they were out of food and someone had given just a little bit and he fed the multitudes. He is a type of Christ. And then we see his compassion to the other nations. You remember what, when Nahum came to him? Nahum was from the country, the kingdom of Aram, the enemies. And he healed them of leprosy. And then you remember when the Syrians were attacking them? Well, there were some miracles involved. But Elisha, after the miracle, single-handedly led the blinded Syrians to Samaria, (laughs) the last place they want to be on earth. It was a total surrender. They were blind. And then he let them go. Instead of putting them to death, he let them go. And there were some good results from that. But he had compassion. So he was a man of compassion. He was Israel's moral compass, many areas throughout second Kings. but then what about with Gehazi when Gehazi lied and he discerned that Gehazi had lied had been revealed to him and of course Gehazi got Naaman's leprosy, but he was the moral compass there and he performed approximately 30 miracles. Through God's power, including raising the dead. Well, there's one more that I could have added to this, but I wanted to keep this separate. This is the third point. I'm going to talk about this for verse 20. And in addition to all of these, he was indeed Israel's defense. You remember when we just read verse 14 and he says, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen? It's because all along, Elisha has been the prophet of defense. He has been actively involved in the defense of Israel's military. Um, He did that against the Moabites in chapter three of 2 Kings. I just mentioned that he did that with the Syrians, although he released them, but they stopped um, in, invading them for a time. That was in Second Kings 6. And then with the Arameans, you remember the king was doing a plot of how we're going to go attack Israel and where we're going to attack Israel. And pretty smart man, a good man of strategy, except they had Israel had the prophet of God and God would reveal to him what the king was going to do and where and so he was telling the king not to go there or if you're going to go there fortify it and the king of Aram was so frustrated he wanted to know who was who was uh the leaker who was leaking this information and finally he was determined that it was it was indeed Elisha so He's called the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, so he was also Israel's defense, and we could add that to his. Well, now, we're going to talk about the band of Moabites. Look what it says there in verse 20. Elisha died, and they buried him. And it says, now, the bands of the Moabites would invade the land in the spring of the year. Well, springtime was a time for battle of all of these nations and foreigners. Number one is that the weather was conducive to long travel. And also water was available in the springtime. And the other times it, it becomes very deplete of water. In fact, that was one of the miracles of Elisha. They didn't have water. And he said that water was going to come. And he had them dig trenches and it did. So uh, springtime, when there is water sources and it's available, this is when many of these nations will invade. And many nations like to invade Israel. And the Moabites were one of them. So they're coming down. And it sounds like they've done this quite a bit. Well, the problem is that Elisha is dead. There's nothing that he's going to do about that per se. Come to verse 21 then. Verse 21 it says, as they were burying a man, and, and it's a dead man. Okay, there's some people say, well, maybe the man wasn't dead because it doesn't say he's dead. Well, believe me, you, we only bury dead people. So, it says they were burying the man, and behold, they saw a marauding band. They saw the Moabites coming in the spring with plenty of water and a good, good weather to make this long trip. And what did they do? <laughs> well. The funeral service was cut short. (laughs) Dust to dust, ashes to ashes, throw the body, here we go. Again, that's what they did. They threw the body, and it was there at Elisha's grave. Now, uh, most likely the grave, we think of the grave, we think of, you know, a hole dug in the ground. But most of the time for the Israelites, it was a cave or someplace where they would put the body in and then put something in front of it like a stone. They were still doing that at the time of Jesus. So they they hurried up and threw this man and it says that he the man touched the bones of Elisha and he revived and stood up. Now the word revived there should not be misleading. It means he lived again. He It wasn't just kind of in a, a coma it didn't look like he was alive he was dead and he stood up on his feet so i'd like to kind of just talk about some of these here uh just to kind of go through this so this is the last mention of elisha in the old testament and it is his last miracle and as we look at this what what does this all mean what why is this happening Um, Why is God allowing this to happen, and why does he have, have it happen now? Well, I think we have God's power, God's prophet, and God's prophecy. We have a little more than that, but I left it at just that, God's power. So the first thing is, is that whenever God does miracles, it's usually for Israel. And it's usually to encourage Israel to come back to him. Also, it's also to encourage Israel to Do the will of the Lord, even in difficult circumstances. So the first significance is that it demonstrated God's power. He is the God of the living. That's what Jesus had said in Matthew 22, 32. He quoted scripture, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So that already sets that up about God. We come to the New Testament when we see that there has been those who were resurrected. And I mean a physical um, resurrection, not a glorified resurrection. That doesn't happen until Christ himself is resurrected. But we see this set up and we go back to the Old Testament and that's what we think of. So he was telling Israel, I'm still here. I still am powerful. You may choose your false gods, but when the chips are down, you always seem to turn around to me. I always seem to help you, and then you always seem to turn your back on me. But he's still there. By the way, this is going to show his compassion, and we're going to see more of his compassion, a theme that has been especially in the life and ministry of Elisha. The second point is God's prophet. This also demonstrated that Elisha was indeed... God's bona fide prophet so unlike today you can't just declare yourself a prophet nor can someone lay hands on you and say you're now a prophet nor can you go to a seminar or a school get a certificate and then therefore you are a prophet you can't do that God chooses you or he doesn't Now, we shouldn't feel too bad about that because all that the prophets have written, we have. We have in the Old Testament, the scriptures. We have God's chosen spokesman in the New Testament. We have the apostles. We have all that God wanted to give us. We have everything we need for life and godliness through the writings of the prophets and also the apostles. And here, it's a demonstration that Elisha, bones and all, is a prophet that has been chosen by God. Now, the interesting thing is here is that it says his bones uh, are are there. So uh, I don't know if it means that they have decayed, that that's all it is, is bones. And that's what happens in the cave, it decays. Although uh, it is said that even back at that time, they would wrap the body. But the idea is, is I think it just touched Elisha. That's what I think. It just touched Elisha, and the power of God, through his prophet, brought this man back to life. Now, I've said several times that Elisha is a type of Christ, and and here's where we get that. You know, that one picture we saw, it said, Elisha, the prophet of life, and rightly so. He had the miracle of raising the Shunammite's son— and now there's a miracle of he's raising another life when, when he's actually not there. That's just the shell of his body. And so he's called the prophet of life. But we, he is a type of Christ. But, of course, the perfection is found in Christ who is more than just a prophet of life. He is life. He is the resurrection. And that's what he said in John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So he is a type of Christ in that way. And you could also say too that in order for there to be life in this miracle, Elisha had to be dead so that God would orchestrate it through this miracle this manner of miracle. Well, in order for there to be life, eternal life and resurrection, Christ had to die. So there was a death. And then he was raised to life. But you think about, well, what about the sinner? Well, the sinner is dead spiritually. And he has to come and touch Christ with the arms of faith. And then he Becomes alive as well. So what a beautiful picture. But there also is another one. That brings us closer. To the context. And back to this. It confirmed. Elisha's promise. So we have God's power. God's prophet. And now God's prophecy. It confirmed Elisha's promise. To Jehoaz. That he would defeat his enemies. Even though the prophet was dead. So. You, you remember the situation with the bow and the arrows. I mean, there was the promise of defeat there. And perhaps Jehoash, as he's crying, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen, he's saying, my father, my father, the defense of Israel, what am I going to do if you die? And when he did die, It showed not only the power of God and that God was still with them, but that in a sense that this promise is going to be kept. God's promises, prophecies, Elisha's words from the Lord are going to be kept. He is going to defeat his enemies through the prophet. We're going to see that in these next few verses. So. What's interesting is when you're looking at the scriptures and you have a couple of verses and you're saying, man, I don't see how they come together. It almost looks like they just, they had to, you know, do what I do. You have to fill up two pages of notes. So if you don't have enough notes, you have to write more notes. No, I don't just do that. Um, I condense it to two pages of notes. And then I pray to the Lord, Lord, please help me Say all these in sufficient enough time without going over. But everyone is gracious and merciful and compassionate here. So. But, but then again, the, the word of God is good. Why, why, um, you know, why, why go to a restaurant that has a buffet and eat all that you want and all that you can and come away and say, man, that place was great. No one goes away hungry. Well, this is Grace Bible smorgasbord here. This is the buffet line. We don't want anyone to go home hungry. Well, anyway, let's now move to verses 22 through 25. This is Jehoash's three victories. And I'm sure you're putting that together. Jehoash's three victories. Well, Let's begin with verse 22, and it says, Now, Hazael, king of Aram, had oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. Now, this is the same Hazael that, when Elisha was talking to him, began to weep, and when he asked him why, in 2 Kings chapter 8, Verse 12, he replied, because I know the evil that you will do to the sons of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire and their young men you will kill with the sword and their little ones you will dash in pieces and their women with child you will rip up. And it brought the prophet to tears again, the moral compass of Israel. Now we've seen Haziel in chapter 10. It says, in those days, the Lord began to cut off portions from Israel. In other words, Israel was being disciplined and Haziel was the instrument. And it says, and Haziel defeated them throughout the territory of Israel. So that was just two chapters later after he became king. We see it In chapter 13, uh, verse 3, it says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Aram, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. So we see that now. We're going to go through this, and then we're going to kind of go back a little bit because they want to emphasize one of the events. But it's the same point. The Lord's anger was kindled against Israel. And so he raised up this instrument who wasn't a very good instrument. And it's still under the sovereignty of God. God is morally clear. It was as if he just stood back and let the evil Hazael do what the evil Hazael was going to do. And if you remember, even in 2 Chronicles chapter 24... It talked about that he had set his eye, set his face towards Jerusalem. He's after Jerusalem, and they came after Jerusalem. And in Second Chronicles, it says that, that they came to Judah and Jerusalem, destroyed all the officials of the people from among the people, and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. And then it says, Indeed, the army of the Arameans came with a small number of men, Yet the Lord delivered a very great army into their hands, meaning Israel. Because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers, thus they executed judgment on Jehoash and also Jehoahaz. So he's brought up here and the it, it, it's, it's confirming this, it's connecting this, it's cross-referencing. This is what we've been told all along and it says, Now Hazael, king of Aram, he oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. So we see this judgment. And of course, both Jehoahaz, the father, and Jehoash, the son, both had the inscription and they did evil in the sight of the Lord. They did not stop the worship of false gods. Now, verse 23 is where we're going to see compassion. So as bad as it is, as bad as the picture that 2 Kings has painted, that they were so bad that God had to raise up this king who was evil, who was going to go after them, that even after Jehoahaz prayed and the Lord did bring a deliverer, the Assyrians, for a time to stop the Arameans, but only for a time. Then they turned right up, right back and started worshiping false gods again. And again, one would almost say, this is out of place, but it's not because this is the character and the attribute of our Lord. Verse 23, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and turned to them. In other words, instead of turning away from them, to, to the enemies have Adam, he turned to them to protect them, to be gracious and so show grace and compassion because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence until now. So we see the Lord's compassion and we've talked about this several times, but that's good. We should talk about it every time it comes up in scripture because that is our mantra, isn't it? As believers, oh, but by the grace of God, you know, you've heard the expression, how are you doing? Um, Well, uh, better than I deserve because of the grace of God. Uh, Yeah. And that is exactly right. So we ought to love this and put this on a banner. And so... In spite of their sin, he was gracious and compassionate to his covenant people. So there's a couple of things here, and I I do plan on talking about it just shortly. But one of the things that we're going to see is they're still being punished, but not punished to the nth degree. And that's the part where God's compassion has come in. Because it says here that he would not destroy them or cast them away from his presence meaning to go into exile. Oh, they're going to go into exile. They're going to they're going to exhaust is what I want to say, but they're going to exhaust the mercy of the Lord, not really because the Lord will continue to show mercy to Israel, but they're going to exhaust the, Israel, the, the mercy of God where God's going to tell Jeremiah, Jeremiah, not listening. Not, do not pray. Do not pray. I'm not listening. It's done. It's over. Sayonara. And, and so that's going to happen. But, but, but all along, God is showing mercy and compassion to sinners even while they're still sinning. Not because he winks at sin. That's why you still have the punishment. That's why the punishment will come to a fulfillment. But in the meantime, he is showing an act of mercy. So I I say that his compassion has mercy. Compassion reminds us of having pity on someone in a terrible situation. Mercy is forgiving someone who doesn't deserve it. So we see both of those together in the attributes of God. Also, we're going to see that there's a little bit of victory here. There's going to be a little bit of victory. God's going to give grace and compassion that the people won't be torn asunder by Hazael forever. And that they are going to have some reversal of the cities that were taken and put under Aram. Now they're going to get them back. We're going to see that in verses 24 and 25. But I do want to point out it says and they wouldn't he he would not destroy them or cast them from his presence until now. The now is the time of writing. Okay? It's the time of writing of the book of Kings not now now, but now then the time of the writing. Well, as we look at this then, verse 24, in a sense, in a sense is beginning of mercy. Look at what it says. When Hazael, king of Aram, died, Ben-Hadad III, his son, became king in his place. The death of Hazael was, in effect, the mercy of God. This guy is not going to go on. I mean, God could have allowed him to go on and on and on, continue to do this. But at some point, it stopped and... Um, He wasn't able to keep that on. So we see the mercy and compassion of the Lord kicking in. Um, And then, verse 25, we're going to see the rest of that mercy that he just talked about. And here's where we see another verse that's so connected with everything else, it's going to bring it all together. Everything that we've been talking about, it's going to bring it all together. So, verse 25 says, Then... Jehoash, the one with the crocodile tears, the son of Jehoahaz, the one with the crocodile prayer, took again from the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities which he had taken in war from the hand of Jehoahaz, his father. So let's just stop there. So at this point, we, we see that there is victory. Elisha's words are coming true. He is going to defeat the Arameans. God's promise is there. God's prophecy is there. God is still among his people, even though they are sinning. But for the sake of the covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is a covenant-keeping God. Uh, alongside of his mercy and his compassion is his faithfulness, and it's being fulfilled here right in verse 25. And so that were there were certain cities that were taken from Israel under the reign of Jehoahaz. Now, as I was looking back in Second Kings, it doesn't really say that I've seen. Maybe it does somewhere that I didn't find it. But in Second Kings... Um, 13.3, once again, we see So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Aram, and into the hand of Ben Hadad, the son of Hazael. Meaning that while they're killing people, they're stealing land and they're taking cities. And then in verse 7 of chapter 13 of 2 Kings, it said this about Hazael. That he left to Jehoahaz, the army, not more than 50 horses, 10 chariots, and 10,000 footmen. For the king of Aram had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. Wow. So it's, it's almost as if there's a lot more going on with this Hazael guy. And certainly we would expect that he took areas. He took cities because this is why they come in the springtime. They, they don't come to fellowship like we do here at Grace Bible Church. They come to steal your land and your goods. Well, the exciting part or the finale or the dramatic irony The author says, concludes this three times. Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. There it is. That's why we spent a little time going back on the mere three arrows. He only shot three arrows. If he'd have shot five or six arrows, he would have destroyed Aram. But he didn't destroy Aram but he defeated him three times and he got back. Those cities, that's great. That's part of the promise. But what it leaves you thinking about is why didn't he have faith? Why didn't he obey Elisha? Why didn't he serve the Lord wholeheartedly except that he instead looked to these false gods to protect him? Well, this is is a fitting ending. So, God is gracious, even though in the midst of punishment. God is gracious to those who are sinners, but he also will mete out all that needs to be dealt with. And three times, Jehoash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. Now, that one verse happened to say that both Hazael and Ben-Hadad, they oppressed them meaning that, okay, you got three, but maybe the score was six to three, meaning you lose. Uh, You get the idea that there were other times that Ben-Hadad didn't lose, that he did keep some of the area that they had taken, that he did kill many of the soldiers. And so this is the idea of the recovery of the cities, the fulfillment of God's promise. Well, Let's move now to observations and applications here. Well, the first one that I have to talk about is today's faith healers. In the majority of cases, when a faith healer cannot heal, he blames it on the person's lack of faith. They have the opinion that God can only heal if the person has enough faith. Hence the name faith. Healer, faith healer. He can only heal if the person has enough faith. And it's so convenient because these faith healers don't really heal. There has never been one documented healing of these faith healers. I'm not talking about the Old Testament. And I'm not saying that God doesn't heal, but I'm just saying with these would-be prophets and faith healers, who are full of shenanigans. There's not one documented case where there was an actual healing by them coming over or going to those church services and coming there and having enough faith. You know, one of the people that told us about that was Justin Peters. Justin Peters was up front because he wanted to be healed from his MS. Now, he was up front, but he was in the back of the up front. There were other people that were in front of him, people that were staged. And I've heard from a a very reliable source who was there as a security, not at the same time as Justin, but as a security at one of these Benny Hinn healing services. And these people came in, sat in wheelchairs, supposedly got healed, and then went back and sat on the bus. They were there just to be staged. What a disgrace that is on the name of God. God is sovereign and God can heal. He's omnipotent and he does heal, but he doesn't always heal and healing is not guaranteed and it's only according to his will. And we've seen, we've prayed, uh, God's people have prayed and we've seen healing um, and yet, at the same time, we've prayed and we've seen that there was no healing. But in the cases where we prayed for believers, they got to go home and be with the Lord, which Paul said is far better. Well, though faith is required for salvation, right? Faith alone and Christ alone. As well as the Christian life, we have to have faith faith that he has given us everything we need to live the Christian life. The Holy Spirit, the new nature, and we have to, by faith, put it into prayer. We don't see it, even the armor of God. We don't see the armor of God, but we have it. I'll put it on, have it on, keep it on, maintain it with prayer, and then we've got to step out in faith, right? So faith is needed for living the Christian life. So then, is faith a viable excuse for why faith healers cannot heal? The answer is no, it's not viable. Now, I understand that there are some scriptures where it does talk about Jesus healed on the basis of their faith. One, he could very well have been talking about faith in him as the Messiah. And two, it could be faith in who he is and that he was able to do it. But not every time. There, the, there are miracles by Jesus that there, there was no faith involved. Just like we have here this example with Elisha. What do we have with Elisha? We have a dead man and a dead prophet and there was a healing. No faith involved. Dead men and dead prophets don't have faith. Well, that's exactly what we also see in Scripture. Jesus healed. You remember Malchus, the high priest servant. You know the one where Peter, the skilled sword swordsman with the machaira, instead of killing him, just barely missed him and whacked off his ear. Well, we know that Christ healed him. Did he have faith? Did Jesus ask him, "If you have faith, I can heal"? And you know what? There's a chance that he probably didn't have faith. He was the high priest's servant. And the high priest surely didn't have faith. He ended up crucifying Christ. So this man didn't have faith. This man, there was no talk of faith. And he was healed. What about the apostles? Well, we see in Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, you remember as... Peter was going there uh, to the temple, says, a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to sit down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, in order to beg alms, donations, you know, of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John, he didn't ask for healing. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. And you know what Peter said. Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him. Be careful when these prophets fix their gaze. Fixed their gaze on him and said, "'Look at us!' And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them, alms. Peter said, "'I do not possess silver and gold.'" But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene walk. No question of faith there. Do you have faith? If you have faith, you can do it. So there are m- numerous examples in the scriptures that, that, that show that there does not have to be faith for healing. What does it have to be? God's sovereignty, God's will, God's power, and God's profit. Apostle or son, and that's what we have. So today's faith healers don't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> and you do wonder why many of them wear glasses, right? I mean, if they're if they're faith healers, why are they wearing? Gla- why do they need prescription glasses? That's what I always want to know. Okay, enough on that. Now um, I want to just quickly talk about the Lord's compassion, and then I, I also want to talk about these uh, miracles of Elisha. So let me just quickly... So we've, we've talked about the Lord's compassion, and I, I basically have said what I wanted to say, that it's, it's, his compassion is merciful. Compassion is pity upon those with uh, difficulties. Mercy is forgiveness, giving them what they don't deserve, and God couples that together. And it was a perfect example of Jehoash who did evil in the sight of the Lord, who had crocodile tears. Oh, Elisha, you don't go, don't go. What are we going to do? Who's going to help me? Instead of, you know, the man, this man of God going home to be with the Lord. But he did not permit them to go into exile at this time. And we see the same thing with the southern kingdom from the book of Jeremiah. You know, they're getting closer. God's warning them. They're getting closer. If you would just turn. But they won't. And God shows mercy to the southern kingdom too in the same way. It's prolonged. It's prolonged. And you know, it's not as if it just happened in Jeremiah's time or Elisha's time or even in the minor prophets' time. This goes as far back as Deuteronomy. That God said, if you forsake me and serve other gods, all of these things will come upon you. And one of which is that you will be sent to another nation and you will serve them. Well, it also speaks of salvation, doesn't it? That is the ultimate expression of God's compassion and mercy to those who do not deserve it. Us, there isn't a person saved who deserves it. And We really can say, when they say, how are you doing? I'm better than I deserve. That is a theological truism, better than I deserve. No one deserves salvation. And he saved us by punishing his son in our place. And then I would even go so far to say that God is gracious, that even in the Christian life, he gives us grace. Uh, Many times we don't really deserve it. I mean... We are sinners. We're sinners saved by grace. We, none of us live a perfected life. We can't. We, it doesn't happen in this life. And yet, he's, he is a good God. He's a gracious God. I mean, are there times in your life when you go, God is just good. And it humbles you because you really know that we're not so good, even as Christians all the time. I mean, put yourself up against the standard of God's love. How far do we fall? Put your standard up against God's mercy. How far do we fall? God's compassion. How far do we fall? So when we look at that, we're not so good, but he's still good to us. And so we learn that from the book of 2 Kings. Well, now quickly, let's turn to that extra piece of paper with the uh, chart of Elisha's miracles. And I'm brought back to the thought when Elisha asked for a double portion. And here's a quote on that, and I, they, they certainly bring out what I want to cover this evening. In Israel, the firstborn son inherited a double share of his father's possessions, and with it the right of succession. But he asked for a double portion of your spirit. It was not merely Elisha's request to succeed Elijah in his prophetic ministry. In other words, he wasn't just saying, I want to make sure that I'm a prophet. No, you're already going to be a prophet. You are a prophet in training. It says, since the Lord had already revealed this succession in 1 Kings 19. And then it says, nor was it Elisha's desire for ministry superior To Elijah, though Elisha did, in fact, do twice as many recorded miracles as Elijah. So I didn't put Elijah's miracles here, but we've looked at them, and there were 16 that were counted. When you count these, these are 32 miracles that are here. Apparently, Elisha was asking to succeed Elijah in the prophetic office as God has promised, with the spiritual power beyond his own capabilities to meet the responsibilities of his position as Elijah's successor. He desired that Elijah's mighty power might continue to live through him. And it would be like, oh, well, you just just did the same amount of miracles as Elijah? Well, what's so big about that? Not that he was lifting himself up, but, but to show that it wasn't him, but it was the power of God. And so here we have the miracles and I will say some of them are probably more towards prophecies and predictions although what he does prophesy and predict is a miracle when it happens and it happened under his realm. So those are included in there. Um, well, he remember it began when he divided the water in the river so he could be called not only the prophet of life, he could be called the the prophet of dividing water. He healed the water of Jericho. You remember that in chapter 2, the purifier, the prophet of purification. Um, he cures, or I'm sorry, he doesn't cure, he curses youth. 42 of them get mauled with two female bears. I don't know what you would want to call them there, but then He decrees that water would come when it was a time of the drought. And so that was the miracle there in chapter 3. He defeated the Moabites. And we see various ways in which he did it. Um, One of the ways was through an optical illusion and the confusion of red water. They saw the water. They thought it was blood. They thought that Israel had hired kings to fight against them. And they went fearful and Israel caught up and defeated them. You remember when Elisha uh, met the prophet's wife who was didn't have anything and he provided oil for her in jars. You remember Elisha decreed that the Shunammite woman should have a son. She was the one that had the house room for him and made him a meal. She was a partner with him. In his ministry. And to really show his thanks, and you see his gratitude there, his, his compassion, he decrees that a son be given to her. Well, then what happens? The son dies, the Shunammite son. Well, he is the prophet of life, and he raises the child. Elisha purifies the pot of stew. So he is the prophet of cuisine. <laughs> <laughs> Elisha multiplied food. You remember they were out of food. Somebody gave a food. It wasn't enough. And so he had that miracle. Then Naaman from Aram, the the, uh, the captain, comes and he's healed. Again, there's Elisha's compassion. Elisha discerned Gehazi's lie, the moral compass. Elisha prophesies leprosy over Gehazi. How about the floating axe? He's the prophet of Home Depot that he can retrieve all utensils and tools. Elisha warns the king. I love this one. Three times, Elisha warns the king of Israel about the Syrians and talks about their plans to invade. And the king is like, what's going on? Well, that was a miracle. God revealed that to him. Um, How about the time that Elisha opened the eyes of his servant, who thought they were outnumbered, but he opened his eyes and he saw the angelic realm who was there to fight for God, for Israel as well. Then it's the time that the Syrians were invading, were invading. Well, he blinded them. You can't fight very well as a blind person. And so the next miracle was that he captured them. He said, okay, boys, follow me. And they just followed the voice, right? Probably had one hand on top of the shoulder of another. And he marched them right into Samaria because of that miracle. And then he healed them from their blindness. And they saw where they were. And then you could probably call it a human miracle under the direction of God where he let them go and said no we're going to show mercy again the prophet of mercy then the foreknowing of the king's action this is when the king says I'm going to get this guy I'm let's go we're going to Elisha where is he they told him where he was so Elisha's sitting there with the elders and he says you know what this king this murderous king is coming here and he knew that even before it happened and then all of a sudden it happened well towards the end chapter 7 he predict the excess of food and that is when the that is when the soldiers the enemy uh thought they heard chariots and they ran and they left all of their food and provisions there and Israel was able to go in and and up until then the prices were extremely high and then the Prices came down and everyone had and everyone could afford. He predicts the officer's death. The one officer that said, You can't do that. You can't. You're that's ridiculous. You can't you can't prophesy that there's going to be a lot of food like that. And and he said to him, Yes, I can. Yes, I did. Yes, you will see it, but you'll never partake of it. And you remember? He died. He, the people trampled over him. He prophesied seven years of famine, and of course there was. He predicted Ben-Hadad's death. You remember, the king sent his servant to find out if he was going to die of this illness, and he said, no, you're not going to die of the illness. But he was going to die because Hazael was going to go back and waterboard him to death. And that's exactly what he did. He then predicted Hazael's treatment of Israel. And we see that coming to fruition. He also predicted about the destruction on the house of Ahab through Jehu. That happened. And then we come to, he predicted that that Jeho, okay, a lot of J's here. Jehoash. (laughs) is only going to have three victories because of that bow and arrow event. And that's exactly what happens. He only has three victories. And then the final miracle that really puts him as the prophet of life, a type of Christ, is a dead man is revived by touching Elisha's body. So, again, um, we see a lot of other prophets that, in their own right, get all the accolades and and elisha does too for those who study and do Bible study, but it, it it almost seems as if he could be the forgotten prophet, but what a tremendous prophet he was, and what a tremendous ministry he had let's go to the Lord in prayer, Father, we thank you for second kings. we thank you for second kings, where it's pointed out about your mercy along with your compassion, along with your faithfulness to your people. Thank you that we are your people, that we are recipients of your mercy through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of life. Father, may we always be encouraged in our Christian life. You, you often treat us far better than we deserve. You are a God who gives us and has given us more than what we deserve. But that's because you're a grace-giving God. Father, also too, we see really the litmus test for true prophets, the litmus test for true faith healers. And Father, the ones that are there today are found wanting. Father, give us discernment, not to, not to uh, tear them down, but Father, to speak the truth where many people are deceived and many people who have diseases and ailments and physical problems, Lord, they come and they are so distraught because they believe that they have enough faith and yet they go home not being healed. When in all reality, they should be taught from the scriptures that it's God's will to heal or not to heal. And all of that and both of those are for your glory. So Father, we commit ourselves to you and we thank you for the study of the prophet Elisha. And we'll thank you for all of this in Jesus' name, amen.